Good morning. You may open your Bibles to Zephaniah chapter 3. We're going to be continuing in our series looking at verses 9 through 13. And be encouraged that as we look at our text this morning, that hey, we're done with doom and gloom. We have made it officially to the closing verses of Zephaniah where he is saying happy things, not just judgment things. And so Zephaniah begins to proclaim the wonder of the day of the Lord, not for those who would fear the day of the Lord, but the wonder of the day of the Lord for those who are in Christ, as we now would understand. And so we look at our text this morning, and we ought to walk away proclaiming, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Our theme for the passage here in Zephaniah 3, 9 through 13, reminds us of the relationship of God's people to that final day. God brings about tomorrow's day of the Lord by working in and through his people today. Tomorrow is brought about by working in us today. To unpack and understand our theme this morning, we have two beginnings to consider. At that time begins now for the Gentiles. That's going to be looking at verses 9 and 10. On that day begins today for the Jews. And that'll be looking at verses 11 through 13. And so... Let's read our passage together in its entirety before breaking it into parts because, again, we have a very short passage of Scripture that we can read and not uh, feel conviction of the Lord for our attention span not lasting to the end of the passage. So let's look at verses 9 through 13 together. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. And on that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For I will then remove from you in your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be any, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Father, soften our hearts as we hear from you. Soften our hearts that you may shape us further into the image of your Son this morning by singing praises to you, by worshiping you through the preached word, by giving, by hearing the word read. In all of these ways, we submit ourselves to you and we worship you as one people here at Cedarview. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we get to pray. Amen. 
And so let's hop into our first beginning this morning. At that time begins now for the Gentiles, verses 9 and 10. And don't worry, again, the text only tangentially relates to judgment. We're on the other side of that coin, and we're going to discuss some happy stuff. So let's read verses 9 through 10 again. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Now this point is titled, at that time, begins now for the Gentiles. But that may not be immediately apparent to you from the text. So we have a few hints in our text that specify that these verses are relating to Gentiles, not the promised people of God, not Israel, not the Jews, but to these unbelieving nations. So first, the language of the speech of the peoples. It is telling that the language of the verse is plural with the peoples rather than a singular people. Furthermore, it is noteworthy that some form of the possessive my is not used in the text in verses 9 and 10. My people, for you will. It is the people's, not my people. Similarly, it is telling that the prophet refers to those calling on the name of the Lord as them rather than us. And then the second clue um, is more direct, but if you're like me and you have a public school education in geography, maybe these geographical references are not as beneficial to you as they are to me. So this, in verse 10, this is past the southernmost branches of the Nile, deep into the continent of Africa, notes the commentator Robertson. So these rivers beyond the Kush are far beyond the lands that we would understand to be the lands of God's people, the lands of Israel, the lands of Judah, okay? So this region is beyond what any reader would have understood to be God's, the land of God's people. And so the statement informs us that we are speaking of Gentile converts. And so we've established that these people are in fact Gentiles. But now consider the language of pure speech and peoples. Maybe some of you have made the connection already. You don't have to turn there. It'll be up on the screen. But we're going to look at Genesis eleven six through 9. And I will go ahead and read. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, referring to the people building the Tower of Babel. And they, will, they all have one language. And this is, the on, this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from over there and over there uh, the, across the face of the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. What we see in the story of the Tower of Babel is one people united by vile speech, speech against the Lord their God, that was scattered into many peoples separated by confused languages. 
one people scattered to become peoples, not united. But one day, many peoples will be gathered into one people, united by pure speech. So, the next question is, what do we do until then? Do we sit twiddling our thumbs, continuing in vile speech until Jesus returns to, well, we know on that last day there will be Peter's speech, and so I'll just, uh, you know, I'll take care of that tomorrow. Surely not. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul tells us, surely not. So while pure speech will be finally realized on the last day, pure speech among God's people is being established, built, and developed today. We saw a foretaste of this Babel reversal at Pentecost, where for a time all spoke and understood one another, though they spoke and understood various languages. If you can imagine this room of people representing this many different languages in the same room, if all of us spoke a different language, would we be able to communicate? No. I'm pretty sure punching me in the face is universal for you're mad at me. I'm pretty sure, uh, I, don't even, I was going to say a hug. I don't even know if a hug is universal. There might be some cultures that take that as an affront and an attack, that you're trying to wrestle me to the ground. Confused languages. And yet all of these people that spoke different languages by the power of the Spirit, miraculously, not only did they speak where they were understood, but they heard speaking and understood the speaking. We see this as a reversal, the Tower of Babel. But astute listeners will point out, hey, Kyle, but Pentecost was a gathering of Jews, not Gentiles. And if that's you, then you are correct. But you have fallen into my trap to continue on this point. Now, this could be described as a rabbit trail, and maybe it is to some degree. But follow me because I find this to be a truly encouraging idea, a way that we can see God's plan of salvation working through all peoples across all time to one singular end. Okay? So, at that time begins now for the Gentiles, correct? Now, we know that unbelieving peoples from many nations will one day have one singular pure speech. That's what's being prophesied here. But do we assume that God will simply allow us to do our sinful thing until that day? As we said, absolutely not. Surely not. So what verifiable, tangible, historical event can we point to where God is taking an active role in purifying the speech of the peoples. Well, you know that many Jews repented and believed at Pentecost, right? But what of those that repented and believed and remained in Jerusalem? What happened next after Pentecost? They were all providentially scattered, sent out due to the persecution in the nations, into the nations, in what we call the diaspora, or the dispersion. 
So these Jewish Christians, those that repented and believed by the word of Peter at Pentecost, they, many of them remained in Jerusalem, but they didn't stay there because providentially the hand of God scattered them into the nations. So here's the connection. God worked in and through the Jews to bring the gospel message spoken by Peter at Pentecost to unbelieving Gentile nations. Nations that would hear news of Jesus and were told stories of a gathering at Pentecost where all speech became one by some miraculous manifestation of the Spirit of God. Cedarview, just as we see the Gentiles did, we see just as the Gentiles did back then, that Pentecost clues us in to a wonderful future reality, a future truth. That while God's people will have pure speech on the last day, that we know that God today is purifying the speech of his people even now in preparation for our king's return. Just as, this is, just as it, this is the will of God for the peoples, so we know also that this is the will of God for each person in Jesus Christ. What we are describing is the same interconnection between sanctification and glorification. That we can repent and believe and be declared righteous truly before the eyes of God, though we are not righteous Actually, sanctification then is a lifelong process where God is chiseling away hammer and nail, chiseling away bits and pieces of us that don't look like Jesus. He washes us in the water of the word until finally we will one day be presented to himself in splendor without spot or blemish. This is glorification. God could have simply redeemed us, left us where we are, and then snapped his fingers on the last day to bring us to glory. And yet he didn't. We see clearly time and time again. We saw just in the previous series in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that this is the will of God, your sanctification. You're chiseling bit by bit to look more and more like Jesus. And just as it is with the person in Christ, I argue this morning that it is the same for the peoples in Christ. And so we can confidently say, at that time begins now for the Gentiles. And so now I hoped to color your understanding of our text this morning in our first point by demonstrating how it seems that God has worked in the Gentiles through the Jews. We're going to come back to this idea with our second point, looking at the Jews to the Gentiles. But before then, we're going to dig into some of the details, some of the wording of the text before us, okay? So don't worry, we're going to be able to move more quickly from here as we're breaking down these meanings and terms. So we know that pure speech is being brought about in God's people, but our first sub-point, it will actually address what this pure speech is. We know that God is doing it. We know that he is purifying our speech and that there will be pure speech, 
But what is this pure speech? And so we'll look at pure speech restored. Barker, another commentator, notes that lip is singular in Hebrew and probably refers to the speech of the Gentile nations which have defiled their lips by the worship of false gods. In the future, their speech would be pure as they called on the name of the Lord. So what is pure speech? Zephaniah prophesies of a future time where a people will confess one God, one King, the Lord Jesus Christ. The pure speech of the people is not simply speaking appropriately. Okay? It's not just saying, may I instead of can I. But rather, this speech seems to be directly related to the confession of godhood by the peoples. So again, as Barker mentions, these Gentiles will no longer offer the fruit of their lips to idols, but to God alone. Just as we see in Hebrews 13, 15, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, what is this sacrifice of praise to God? The fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So the offering they bring from beyond the rivers of Cush, these are not sacrifices of goats and bulls, but rather they are sacrifices of God's people through Jesus that are the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. This is the pure speech of the peoples made one people. The pure speech of confessing one God alone. Praise God with me in this room this morning because we here at Cedarview in Olive Branch, Mississippi are those that are represented by the ones from beyond the rivers of Cush. We are the Gentiles grafted in. We are the people of impure speech made alive by the Spirit of God being purified into one people for his own possession that we might at that time be presented in splendor before our bridegroom confessing with purified heart through purified lips Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And so we confidently proclaim as God's people at that time begins now for the Gentiles. And we praise God that he brings about tomorrow's day of the Lord by working in and through his people today. And so from there, we will now observe our second beginning, our second point. On that day begins today for the Jews. And as I mentioned, while these points this morning distinguish Jew and Gentile, we'll be making application that unites them as we unpack how God has worked throughout history. Pentecost being our first hint, I'll ask a question, and in asking you the question, give you another hint. Through what institution do you think God is working in both Jews and Gentiles today? Starts with a C and ends in Hertz. The local church. 
God is working in and through the local church in the world and in his people today. But what does this mean for Israel and the Jews? This is what we see Paul referencing in Romans 11, 11 through 16. Again, it'll be on the screen, so you can read on the screen as I read from here. Romans 11, 11 through 16. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they may fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. What we see Paul describing in Romans is God moving in the Jews and the Gentiles differently, but toward the same end. Though the gospel, the gospel was brought to the Gentiles through the Jewish Christians in the dispersion, right? Then the Gentile Christians served to strike godly jealousy in the heart of the Jews that they may return to their first love. Now to clarify... For those of you that joined us, you soldiers that trudged through our previous midweek study, while the ultimate deliverance of God's people on the day of the Lord unites the application of Jew and Gentile through the church, I still leave room. I have not figured out some of the unique things that may occur between God and Israel that are beyond specifically the final salvation of all of God's people. There are some unique things, seems to be, about Israel that will work out interestingly, I'm sure, in time. But the final arrival of salvation, all of God's people, all of them will arrive in the same place. Now, with the unity of God's people in mind, we'll dig into our first sub-point for our second beginning, a righteous remnant preserved. Now, hopefully you catch the, re the reference to our theme from Jeremiah. Hopefully some of you aren't foaming at the mouth, recalling what was Jeremiah. But I bring Jeremiah to mind intentionally to bring all that you learned as we walked through that book. I want you to bring that to mind and apply it here today. Because rather than reading the passage outright, we're going to try and follow the logic of the passage by asking questions of the text as if we were the original audience, okay? So, in reading this way, I'm hoping to communicate maybe some of the emotions that Zephaniah's people would have felt as they read. This may feel odd, but bear with me, okay? And I'm going to begin reading in verse 11. 
So on that day, you shall not be put to shame. So first, we should ask the text, so to speak, why? Why shouldn't I be put to shame, God? We continue. You shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. Well, (laughs) that doesn't help. That doesn't answer the question why. It actually adds to the confusion, right? We should be put to shame for our actions. And so reading this, we would cry out, wretched are we. What can deliver us from these bodies of death? Zephaniah continues. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Okay, now we're getting somewhere, right? So God will remove the offenders, but now there's another problem. Now we have another question, because while, praise God, you will remove the offenders, who will be left? Who will be left on that mountain if you remove the proud and the haughty? Zephaniah continues. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. But this doesn't give us any peace either, does it? Though I yearn for God, I know that I am neither humble nor lowly. So we ask again. But none are righteous, O God. Who are these people that you describe? We continue. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. Again, with these flowery phrases, right? I fear my enemy and I seek you, God, as a refuge. But deep down in my heart of hearts, I know that none seek after God. And so who are these people? You can imagine the despair that God's people are feeling at this point. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. And wait! Here it is. This phrase, this statement, that maybe the original audience would have begun to understand what Zephaniah is referring to. Where have I heard that before? And so we look at Psalm 32, 1 and 2. I'll read it. It will not be on the screen. In Cedarview, I debated on how to communicate these things to you this week, but this was a time where even prayerful, spirit-guided sermon preparation left me wildly insufficient to further expound this simple, wonderful, despair-shattering truth. Psalm 32, 1 and 2, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. 
So Cedarview, I'm convinced that God's people, as they read this, would have recalled Psalm 32. This is verses 1 and 2, which would have been the title of the psalm. And don't you see how it unlocks and understands the questions that we have asked so far? Wretched are we. What can deliver us? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Praise God, but who will be left on that mountain? Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. But none are righteous, O God. Who are these people? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. None, none, none seek after God. Who are these people? Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. There is a people, Cedar View, that would be forgiven their sins, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. These are those redeemed by our Lord Jesus. Jesus lived a life that we could not, fulfilling all righteousness. He took the punishment for sin and rebellion that we rebels deserved. He died and rose again on the third day that we who repent and believe in him would not perish, but we would have the same everlasting life through him that conquered death and the grave. We see our God with his winnowing fork in the text this morning, separating the wheat and the chaff on the last day, proclaiming that he will remove the proud and the haughty. And though we see a promise to preserve a righteous remnant, God knows that I don't consider myself worthy of remaining. And so, I'm going to do the preacher thing. I'm going to quote a hymn. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? On that day begins today, for the Jews, and we are praising God together that He brings about tomorrow's day of the Lord by working in and through His people today. I urge you all this morning with the urgency that Paul felt for his fellow Jews don't assume that tomorrow's salvation will come and that repenting and believing is tomorrow's task. What will happen at that time on that day? is only for those who are being prepared by God today. Tomorrow is not promised. So if it is you this morning that is hearing the good news of Jesus and recognizing maybe for the first time that you don't deserve an interest in the Savior's blood, then turn away from being the God of your own life and seek the God who pardons iniquity. But if you do know Jesus 
and you are in a season of despair, then just hold on. Because Zephaniah seems to comfort his people by referencing Psalm 23. So let's look at Psalm 23, and then we'll conclude this morning. There are a few ways to encourage you better than how Zephaniah chose to pastorally encourage his own people. And that is a reference to Psalm 23. The prophet, as you see in your Bibles, with verse 13, closes with, For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Now, it doesn't take a particularly experienced theologian to make the connection to Psalm 23 that we just heard read this morning. But isn't it interesting that this allusion by Zephaniah seems to indicate that Psalm 23 has been a bedrock passage for God's people way before we were buying things from Hobby Lobby with Psalm 23 on it, right? Steph and I have been reading a book recently. In the very first chapter, he makes a single statement, a footnote really, that Jesus made it a habit to go and be alone and spend time with the Father. But according to these passages, Jesus never seemed to carry with him any physical copy of the Bible. Now, he would have only had the Old Testament, not the New Testament, but there seemed to be no indication that he carried scrolls with him into the wilderness. What does this mean? Does it mean that the Bible is not very important? Well, obviously not. But do we just write this off as Jesus' superpowers? Like, are we to assume that Jesus simply chose to access divine cheat codes where he then memorized all of the word of God through his divinity? We can disagree on this issue. It's an easily disagreeable issue. But I am not convinced that that was the case. Church, as I read God's word, it seems apparent to me that every verse and every passage Jesus knew of was a passage that he labored to memorize and write on the tablet of his heart. And if that is the case, then observing the ways that Jesus made use of his Bible memory is also instructive for us. Because when I reflect on the ways that Jesus cited scripture, with his temptation in the wilderness as a chief example, I don't see a man reciting pages and pages of text. I see my Lord Jesus so confidently immersed in the word of God that is himself that he rebukes Satan with sharpened, direct citations of truths from God's word. Man does not live on bread alone, Satan. He didn't have to preach a sermon. He cited the truth of God's word simply even. And so, church, as you can see by this rant, uh, this has been weighing heavy on my mind the past couple weeks. But I want to challenge you all in line with these things to devote more time to spend with our Father in heaven where you meditate on the scriptures you already know. But don't hear me say that you should read your Bible less. Just the opposite, in fact. I'm challenging you to devote more time to Bible reading outside of your personal devotion time with the Father. 
I'm challenging you to memorize a passage and then spend time with God in prayerful discussion with the Father. And I challenge you to permit yourselves to travel back in time to your childhood and to recall these wonderful passages like Psalm 23 that we have the tendency to write off as being for children. We can take a page from Miss Dozier's book in singing Jesus Loves Me in our quiet times with the Lord. And so with that challenge in mind, I'd love you all to listen with me to Psalm 23 being read one more time. I would challenge you, commit again the simple truths of Psalm 23 to memory. Dwell on these things and spend time communicating with the Father in prayer, thanking him for these simple affirmations. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Memorize this psalm once again, Cedar View. And confidently shout it before man, Satan, or God as you face trials of various kinds in these coming days. We observe two beginnings this morning. At that time begins now for the Gentiles. And on that day begins now for the Jews. And isn't God good to bring about tomorrow's day of the Lord by working in and through his people today? Isn't God good that he has not left us to our own devices waiting for the end to come? But he is bringing about what will be established for all eternity today. Pray with me. Father, thank you 